From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Dr. Al Prophet is with us this hour to discuss some of his paranormal investigations, haunted houses, a haunted battleship, and one supposed possessed individual. Dr. Prophet is a recently retired professor from the University of North Carolina system. He's lived in the Appalachian Mountains his entire life and was born and raised in the southern coal fields of West Virginia. He graduated with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from Marshall University. He earned his doctorate from West Virginia University in 1990. He's been a professor in three universities, superintendent of schools in two states, a school principal, guidance counselor, assistant principal, teacher, and coach. He's an award-winning singer-songwriter and has appeared on stage with American jazz icons Dizzy Gillespie and James Moody. In his senior year of high school, he was offered but turned down an apprenticeship with the American Wind Symphony Orchestra. He studied the psychical sciences since completing his high school project on ghosts. Dr. L. Prophet, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I am doing very well, Richard, and I hope you are as well. Likewise. You have had, to say the least, a varied career in music, in education, and in the paranormal. And some might find those intersections rather unusual. Talk to me about how that came to be, education and the paranormal. Okay, well, you know, I guess as so many paranormal investigators say, they they were raised in a haunted house, and the same would be said for me. So I had that experience, and I had parents who didn't try to tell me that I was crazy, but they had had experiences as well, and they taught me two basic lessons with this. And the first one has always been important and a central part of my life is that you treat everybody with dignity and respect regardless of their skin, regardless of their religion, regardless of anything about them, and to extend that to the paranormal realm as well. So I've never been someone who would try to provoke or... You know, I've heard of people like going somewhere and and urinating on a grave. And and to me, you know, I just don't think there's any excuse for that. So anyway, I I had that. And then as I was coming through high school, we had to write a a major project, um, as so many do. And so kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek, I went and told one of my teachers that I'd like to write on ghosts. And there was a committee of teachers, and and I told her not only did I want to write on Ghost, I wanted three of my friends to work with me on the paper. So she said, well, she would see and get back to me. So she talked with the other students involved who were three top-notch students, then brought me back to her office. And she told me that if I thought that telling her a few ghost stories was going to be a high school project, that was not it. And she actually made sure that I learned certain things that I was still using when I studied my doctorate, one was the scientific method and one was serious research. So we had to find that place that had the reputation of being haunted and stay there. You know, maybe overnight, get permission, all that kind of thing. You know, we were still in school. And, and so I did that, and we come up with absolutely nothing at that place. But that would change once I graduated from school. But anyway, 
You know, there was a couple things that in, in education, you switch over from the paranormal. One of the things that they taught me there was the, the scientific method, and the other thing that they taught me was the value in working as cooperatively as you could with other people. So it was like peer learning together and using the scientific method. And honestly, that those are skills that I used all through college, through my bachelor's, my master's, and especially my doctorate. So I owe them a debt that I don't think I'll ever be able to repay. But the house that we investigated when I was a senior, when we actually would start to go back there, it became a place. It was maybe 25, 30 miles from us, and uh, it was in a state park. And it was actually the first settlement of this area uh, of that county. So it became a really good place for us to camp. And, you know, it was a three-story house. We had shelter from rain and that kind of stuff. The radio was remarkably clear because there was nothing around it as far as other, any electricity and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, a lot of people will say when I'm leading up to this, well, I bet you all were doing all kinds of mind-altering things. And we weren't. We were doing zero mind-altering things. But we were there. There were four of us there. It was one, one night. And one of the things about studying the paranormal as well, I feel, is that so much of it is people are not going to believe you, and there's no way that you can prove it. Or people are going to believe it and don't even listen to reason on the other side. But anyway... There were four of us, and we had returned, and this was the summer, I think, that I'd graduated from high school, and we were staying there, and we always took our stuff up to the third floor, and we took probably what was a bedroom, and there was no furniture or anything like that, so we had sleeping bags. We had the old Coleman lantern with the mantle, and we had a, a radio with us that, you know, just like... Yeah, I know it might be hard for some of the kids to understand today, but radio was our link to the world, FM radio and, right. and, and AM. And we had it on the strongest signal that we could get or the strongest station. And it was out of Richmond, Virginia, and they were playing classical music, which basically we all liked. We were rock and rollers, but we liked that classical music as well. I also had a, a tape recorder that was battery-driven. And by that time, we were just... Fooling around, this was a reel-to-reel tape recorder, and this is one of the things that I, I will pat my teachers on the back for, too. They told me that I had to have more ways to record this to see if you offer some proof. And so we recorded hours of stuff up there, but by that time, we were just, you know, we were talking over it and, and the, the whole thing. But anyway, this was the sequence of events that happened. And this was my first experience with the paranormal outside of my own home. This is West Virginia, correct? This was in West Virginia, yes. And how did your – let me just ask you, how did your parents feel, all of your parents, feel about you going and spending a night in a haunted house? Well, my parents didn't mind it at all. They thought that they had uh, trained me fairly well, (laughs) you know, to be respectful. And they they also had experience – at that time, I was also playing in in somewhat of a regionally – a popular rock and roll band, so they were used to me being gone, you know, the entire weekend, you know, because we would just stay where we could. It was the very best possible job, you know, after school, summer job that a high school kid could have is being a drummer for a rock and roll band. And so we, they, they were kind of used to that. The other parents, I think, sort of trusted my parents that if I was going to stay there, it must be okay. Okay. And, and my parents knew the, the, these three guys real, real well. Right. The reputation sure. of this haunted house, what was the reputation? 
Uh, the, the reputation, that's a great question, Richard. The, the reputation was that the house had been abandoned and it had been somebody very wealthy had owned it, the Bowers family. But anyway, that there was these hunters that were on the property and they were hunting after the home had been abandoned and they had a child with them. It was, it was two grown men. And I, I guess they were, you know, in West Virginia, that was not unusual because we were taught, you know, how to hunt and, and all that sort of thing. So they had him there. So when uh, they went in to the home, um, I don't know if it was as a joke or whatever, uh, and this is just as a folk legend anyway, but they put him in uh, a room that was under the stairs, and they, they locked him in there. And throughout the evening, he was screaming, please, there's something in here with me, please let me out, please let me out. And as you can guess, they didn't, and as legend have it, when they opened up the door, the young man had clawed both of his eyes out and bled to death through his eye sockets. Oh, my. And, yeah, so, you know, that's, and I remember that because we had to get the background uh, uh, and, and talk to people to get that story of people who knew of the house, and that was a part of my training as well. And, but yeah, so that's what we, we were expecting to find was the ghost of this, this little boy. Uh, and I, I don't know really if we ever experienced a little boy or not. Um, did you capture but, EVPs on, on tape? No. And here's the, here's the thing though. At that point, I didn't really know much about EVPs. As a matter of fact, I didn't know anything about EVPs to where there's no sound and then you pick up something on the recorder. We did not know that, and we, this is well before the you know the internet and everything that we could get to study. It had to be you know either a book that we bought when we went to a more urban area, or what our, our library had. So the tape recorder was there to record things that we would hear. Um, that, that everybody would share and everybody would be able to hear that. I don't know. Does, does that make sense? You didn't understand at the time, and, and who did, that you would have to play it back and listen through hours of tape because EVPs, as we now know, aren't necessarily audible to the human ear live. You have to listen back. Exactly. I, I don't think that I have ever picked up an EVP that I heard live. You know, it was always you listen back to it, and you're right. If you do a, an investigation that goes over, you know, a day or two, uh, there is a lot of film to watch. There is a lot of audio to listen to. And, um, you know, I remember I was talking to Lloyd Arback once, and, and he told me that he basically had given up using uh, video because of the, the tremendous amount of time that you spend. And you can't fast forward through it. You have to watch it, you know, at its speed. And then if you see something, then you slow it down and, and all those things. So it uh, that, that made a lot of sense to me. And I guess it got to the point that I didn't take as much video after that either because he was right, and it did take a ton of time to do that. But we didn't know that as kids, you know, when we were 17, 18 years old. And so we were um, – I remember we were listening to the, the, the station in Richmond, Virginia, very clear, and we had the uh, – uh, a Coleman lantern going, and for people that might not remember a Coleman lantern, it was, uh, you know, you put a little propane or whatever in the bottom, a little oil, actually, not propane, uh, heating oil, and, and then it would uh, heat it would this mantle, and it was really quite bright, and you had to pump it, you know, sometimes to keep it there, but it was really, really bright, causing no problems whatsoever, 
And so one of our friends was pretty much a comedian, and he was going through one of his routines of doing something I can't even remember. And we were basically just having a good time. And by this point, honestly, we had given up on finding ghosts there. We were just going through the motions, but we were just having a good time. You know, it was the summertime, and we were getting ready to scatter all our different ways. And so we were just kind of having, you know, that nice, you know, just opportunity. And again, we were not drinking. At that time, we had never even heard of marijuana. Uh, at least, you know, if we did, it was on the it was on the six thirty news, and it was just the you know a scourge of the devil, and, and all that stuff. So we we really were not using that, and we had, you know, even though this this place would become so and, and still is so damaged by the opioid crisis that, but there was none of that. So that's to say that we all had we were all in our clear minds, and at least the three of them were pretty intelligent, um, and so we were laying there, and, and two of them. Two of the guys were laying down in their uh, sleeping bag and just listening to the nonsense that was going on. And actually, I was beginning to bed down too, but the the tape recorder just stopped. And I knew that we put really fresh batteries in it, so I got up and fooled with it, and I got it to going again. So we continued on with the nonsense, and then it stopped again. I did the same thing, and then it stopped for the third time. And when it did... These things happen, and this is one of those things, oh, believe it if you will, and I'm to the point that I'm no longer really caring if people believe it because I was there, and it happened to me, and I would have many other things happen to me throughout my my career with this. But anyway, uh, the tape recorder quit, the radio faded out, and a door, the front door slammed. I'm not talking about it closed. It slammed, and just as it did that, the the uh, the Coleman lantern faded down. So now we've lost a Coleman lantern, which is not electric. We've lost a tape recorder and a radio, which both were run by batteries. And so we're in the total dark, and then we hear heavy footsteps. Uh, and could this? Could we have been punked? You know. <laughs> I guess anything's possible, but we were way out in nowhere and with this place. And we heard the steps coming up, and it came up the first flight of steps and stopped. And then just as soon as it stopped, the lantern came back on, the tape recorder came back on, and the radio came back on. And so now we're at this point, we've heard the door slam, and if there's somebody or something that has walked up to the first flight. So that means in order for us to get out, we're going to have to go by that, you know? And at that point, there was no question as to whether or not we were going to go out. We were leaving. So we, it took us three trips to get everything up there. That's how comfortable we'd come there carrying coolers and, and all that kind of stuff. And we threw everything that wouldn't break out toward the truck out of the, out of the, <laughs> the back door window. And, and so what we did then is that we had all the other stuff, and we kind of huddled. It looked like kind of a cartoon. We kind of huddled together and went down the steps together just as fast as we possibly could, not stopping to look around and see if we could find some stuff. And it was, quite frankly, one of the most scared that I've ever been. And, you know, I've really tried not to let the paranormal scare me too bad, and this, this kind of helped that, that it would help me get over that type of fear. Let me ask you, Alvin. So just because sure. you know we're we're coming up on the the break here in a few minutes, how did you do on that term paper that you had to write? Oh, we got an A. <laughs> 
We did. I mean, we did real well. We had one of us was the the researcher writer, and uh, one of us was an interviewer, and it, we we did break it up. And uh, it, it, we we did real well, and and I was very pleased with that. I just wish that I still had a copy of that thing. Just before the uh, the break here, let me ask you quickly. Backing up to your childhood, you grew up in a in a haunted house. So tell me about what that house was like. Okay, it was oddly enough, uh, it was built by my parents in 1960, and uh, we'd lived maybe five or six miles away from it. And the the site that that they chose and, and they were able to buy was actually exactly on the same spot as the, uh, the the first person who settled in the county, which was Wyoming County, West Virginia. It was right, it was John Smith, and we were right exactly on the same spot. And, uh, you know, they worked land and, and all those sorts of things. Uh, but what, uh, so it was a new house that we had built. There was no standing structure there. So it's kind of hard to explain as to why a brand new house would be haunted, but I hear that story, you know, you know, several times. I've heard it several times since then. And what we didn't know, but there was a big barn that was right across the the, the road. When I say road, I'm talking about a dirt road, and it was uh, right across from us. And what we did not know is that there was a burial ground that was right there. And this was also a place where um, the Algonquin Indians would would come to. Hunt. They didn't live there because of the rugged terrain. It's really, really rugged in, in southern West Virginia. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's quite beautiful. It's quite striking, but it's very rugged as, as well. And, and so we, um, there was a, somebody that bought a house and was going to build a house beside. They were going to tear down the barn and build them a house there. And then they realized there were graves there. And I remember as a kid watching the excavation folks come in and, and take those those caskets away that they would dig up and some of them when we say caskets they were they, you know they were buried you know 150 years ago maybe and they were buried in a pine box so sometimes they were taking big scoops of dirt you know which i'm i'm assuming had bones and that sort of stuff in it so that's the only way that we could think of as to why it may have been haunted and listen you know there was other reasons that you know we've really never discovered but it was really, it was really interesting, and it was not frightening. This is, as a matter of fact, you know, this is not very original on any part of my family. But we referred to the ghost as Casper. Okay, Casper, the friendly ghost, and I think that was part of my my parents giving me a very friendly face on something that was paranormal, and you know, was told to respect it, you know, and and those sorts of things, which I did. But uh, we we grew up. We had, for example, the most consistently haunted thing that we had is that we had a rocking chair and where the rocking chair actually comes down into uh the rocker part i'm not really sure what you call those you know where it rocks back and forth on on (laughs) the wood that's curved and as you would rock back it would come out of the hole that the chair was attached to uh but the other three would hold tight and when you would rock forward it would snap back in and you could hear it and we heard that night after night after night, and you'd walk in the room, nothing, no movement in the chair, no more sounds. And as a matter of fact, we, you know, back in the day, you know, when they made me go to bed early, I, you know, I'm basically a night person, but they were struggling with that. But we would just listen, and, and you know, it would start, and, and one of my parents, usually my mother, would yell out, there goes Casper. And so it was kind of actually a, a 
you know, we did get kind of, I did anyway, kind of a warm feeling from having, I was an only child and sort of become you know, a brother that I never had or a sister that I never had. And there were, there were many other things. Like there was, we was laying in bed one night, at least I was, and there was this tremendous crash. I mean, it sounded like every pot and pan that we had in the house had just been dumped all at once into the the, the kitchen. And so I got up. This is one of those things, you know, we were still trying to catch it if we could and see it. And so uh, we went down there, and I found my father was already there. And we just looked at each other. There was nothing, absolutely nothing out of place. And it was a loud, loud crash. So anyway, to this day, we haven't been able to figure out what that is. Dr. Alvin Prophet will share some more of his paranormal experiences and investigations right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Dr. Alvin Prophet, and uh, you were talking about your childhood home, which was located adjacent to an Indian burial ground, and yeah. you were sharing some experiences, so you had, I think, one more to add. Yeah, there, there's just one more. My uh, mother w- was a successful beautician and, I guess, entrepreneur. She did have a beauty shop that was inside our house, and, you know, sometimes in this particular area, we would get pretty substantial snows. And we were in we were we were in one of those. It was falling. I was just as thrilled as I could be because there was no school and all that. And so I was just watching TV in the house. And my mother came in, and she she didn't really joke around about things like this, but she said, "I want you to get the largest knife you can find, and I want you to search the house." And she said, "I'll tell you why in a minute." So I checked under the bed, checked everywhere, didn't find anything. And then what had happened was that she was working on one lady's hair, and she was still expecting one more to come in. And they had a divider in the room, and they heard the sliding glass door it opened and it shut. And both she and the other customer spoke to the person they assumed that it was, and there was nothing. That, you know, nobody said anything back. There was no sound, so she stepped around, and there was no one there. But when she went to the door, there were footprints that, that came up the sidewalk and come in to the door and then left the door and went out in the yard maybe 20 feet and just stopped. And so you could go, and you saw at the very beginning uh, of where the sidewalk started, you could see that just like somebody had gotten out of a car, but you could see the footprints and in the snow coming up there and then walking away. And so but we never, you know, we never was able to figure it out. I wanted to jump ahead and, and talk to you about the U.S. Coast Guard. You were vetted and you were given clearance yeah. to study paranormal yeah. events on the battleship U.S. North Carolina in Wilmington. First of all, how does one approach the U.S. Coast Guard to get permission, and and what sort of vetting did you go through? Well, you know, I'm not 100% sure what they actually did or how they vetted me, but the way that it started is that there was a man by the name of Danny Bradshaw, and he's written a book on the haunted USS North Carolina because he was there. He he was, in essence, its caretaker, caretaker and night watchman. I mean, he lived on the boat. 
And he would tell me things, you know, in the interview, like sometimes it gets so bad that I go out and I sleep in my car, but I sleep at the beginning where the tourists come in so nobody can get by me. But anyway, so I talked to him and asked him if I could have permission. He said, well, he was in that that place that he could give me permission. So, and I'm forgetting the the ranks, and he he gave me names and numbers of people that I should call. And finally, I reached a high enough echelon, I guess, within the system of the of the National Guard. And I'm not sure what the, if it was a captain. I really truly do not remember. But anyway, that came back through. He called me and said, "You got it. You, you've been vetted, and you're okay. You can come in." So I went over the first night, and Mr. Bradshaw was there, and it was lit up. Oh, I mean, it was just beautiful. It's just one of these things that's gorgeous. And, you know, my father served in, in the Navy and was in the uh, the entire theater in the in, in the Pacific when uh, we were fighting World War II and, um, on an aircraft carrier. He served on an aircraft carrier. So I had heard stories, you know, about that. And so this is like a kid's dream come true. I mean, it's just two of us on this entire battleship. And so we were – and it was just lit up. I mean, it was like – they had lights everywhere, lights on down deck and, you know, up on the deck. And so we were walking around, and uh, he said, well, come on, I'll take you down here so we tourists don't come here. But let me show you down here. And we were walking down, and we began to hear things. When I say things, I don't know what they were, but it was metal on metal. And then we heard footsteps, and he just looked at me, and he said, you see? And then... Uh, he said, well, come on, we'll pay attention to that, but come on, I'm going to show you something. And then we began to take a few more steps. His light began to go out. And then he looked at me. He said, you know, when this happens, I turn around. And he said, and that's what I'm going to do. You can go if you want to. I turned around with him, and we walked back. And then I just interviewed him, and we sat. You know, we would go up into where the uh, where, where the actual captain was when they, they were piloting the ship. And then, and he said, well, why don't you come back tomorrow night and, and we'll, we'll do it a little bit more for real. So I said, okay. So we came back and I'm driving up into the parking lot, a massive parking lot. This is a, a major tourist attraction as well. And there's no lights on whatsoever on the battleship except for one little portal, one of those little round windows, I guess, portal. And I, I walked up and Danny met me at the beginning of the steps and he said, I got it ready for you tonight. And then he said, I'm not going with you. You have the boat to yourself. And just think, just as a kid, though, I mean, now I'm, I'm given the chance to be on a battleship for goodness sakes. You know, that's enough for the kid in me, the, the Walter Mitty inside of me. Uh, so I'm up and I have all the equipment I've got. I've got, you know, I've got two rather large bags I'm carrying. And I'm setting up meters and I'm setting up, you know, just whatever I had at that particular time, the cameras and the meters. And then uh, I got my flashlight and I grabbed one of the bags, which would had recorders and, and that. And so I was headed down and, and I, I began to go down the steps, you're going straight down from one deck to another deck to another deck. And I was down six, maybe seven decks. And it was just so exciting to me. And then all of a sudden, no warning, no warning. It didn't, my, my flashlight just went out completely. It didn't fade. It just went out. Now, if you're six decks down in a battleship, there is no source of light unless you have electricity. And there's no electricity. So the only source of light that I had was my equipment. And I thought, well, okay, I can use one of my cameras had a light on it that like it would highlight what it is that you were going to shoot. So I went and it didn't work. And then as I went through and I'm doing this in the dark, 
and I'm trying to find things. Nothing worked. Absolutely nothing worked, and except for one little thing, and that was a little bitty flashlight, keychain flashlight that my daughter had given me, and I just had a hope. I just it was on my keys, and I pushed that. And that light came on. It was a very, very, very little bit of light. So I just made sure again with that light, there's nothing going to work. Nothing did work. So now I'm thinking if this thing goes out, I'm in a world of hurt because cell phones do not reach anywhere. They they do not come out of all this metal and stuff. And they told me that. Danny told me, "You, you will find yourself that if you get in trouble on the boat, we won't be able to find you until the morning in all likelihood. We won't even look for you, probably, because we'll still think you're doing your thing. And the, the dangerous part of that is not necessarily a ghost or something paranormal. If you were walking along, just all of a sudden you come into where those stairs, I mean, the, the ladders go down and in the hatchways, you would fall, uh, you know, and it, there's nothing but metal. It would be pretty much be a death fall. I, I just can't see any other way around that. Right, right. But anyway, so I had everything on me, and I was just, I finally did find where I could start my climb back up. And I got up to about the second deck, and things began to start coming on again. It was just the weirdest thing. And this is one of the things that made me believe. I may never be able to prove this experience to anybody, but I know what happened. And uh, did I make any of it happen? No. I am thankful to be out of there without hurting myself, seriously. So that was, in addition to the fun I was having and being on a battleship all by myself, um, you know, that just really was, was one of the most enlightening things that I've ever had happen to me. Aside from the lights going out and your equipment not working, and I presume the batteries were all charged and ready to go. Was there any other yes. unusual activity? Uh, did you capture any uh, any other evidence? Now, I was still shooting uh, video at that time, and I had a, a recorder, uh, a video recorder that was set up in the captain's, or the command deck, in the command deck, and they said that was probably the most haunted place on the boat. And you could hear sounds, but nothing that was, you know... That really sounded ominous, or, or it's just like pops and cracks. And so I took it back over, and I let Danny hear that and see that. And he said, yeah, he said, I hear that all the time, and we cannot explain it. Except in that hatchway that I'm talking about, there was an orb. There was actually two orbs that, that as you look down, and I took the picture that way, that were there. One was beyond the ropes. They had, in certain places, they had safety nets, not ropes, safety nets that would catch someone if they fell. And I, I, I took one of those that had an orb under it and then an orb above it and, and as well. And I know that there's a real debate in orbs doesn't mean anything because they are simply droplets of water and specks of dust and, you know, things like that. Uh, snow, anything like that is captured, and it comes back as an orb, especially dust. And, uh, you know, and, and most, I think, paranormal investigators buy into that. Certainly the camera companies buy into that. But there are some things that you can't explain because imagine as you're taking flash photography, that digital flash photography, and you have one of those orbs that actually has a trail on it. Do you imagine how fast that piece of dust had to be going to make a 
trail. I mean, because it's just like, what, one five hundredth or once in a second, one five hundredth of a second that the flash goes on and off and, the, you know, the aperture opens and closes. And so I never really did buy into that. I'm one of the few holdouts that thinks that, you know, there's a little bit more here than, than meets the eye. And we should we should maybe pay a little more attention to those as we could. Got to jump in here, Alvin. We're going to take another time out. We'll come back and we'll talk about uh, the time you were recruited by a major church denomination to investigate possible demonic activity right here on the conspiracy show my name is richard Serrett. don't go away fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position you're about to leave everything you know behind on the conspiracy show with richard Serrett. dr elvin prophet stays with us I understand you were involved in an exorcism at, at one time, or, or kind of an exorcism. Tell me about that. I saw a man that I thought might be demonic, but I was not going to, or maybe would ha- ha- had some evil entity attached to him, and I wasn't about to tell him that I can get rid of that. I just said, you might need to, to seek a higher authority on this. And then anyway, I got a call from his wife one night, and she said, you got to please, please help him. He's in, he's in the closet. He's not referring to himself by his right name, and he's saying he's going to kill himself. And will you please talk him down? And so she took the phone in, and Richard, it was like talking to somebody that I'd never seen before. And he was referring to his, his name as, as he was a German. He transformed himself into a German. And, we, you know, I, maybe Nazi, maybe not. I'm not sure. But at any rate, uh, I, I began to talk to him, and I couldn't. So then I did something that's very uncharacteristic of me. I said, I want to talk to the entity that's inside of you. And things begin to change. And uh, finally, I, I, you know, I said, I'm not going to try to talk anybody out of, you know, I'm not going to try to do an exorcism. But anyway, I got to the point that I was afraid for his life. I was afraid he had a lovely family, and I was afraid there was going to be some harm. So I said, I want to speak to that entity. Uh, Voice changes, uh, the intonation of his words change, and then after talking to that, that you know, for him for a while, I finally said, I demand that you come out of him and leave this family alone. And basically, I heard the phone drop and silence. And then he got back on and he said, well, I'm in the closet. Why am I in the closet? And I thought, well, I got the guy back. But I never, you know, in, in some ways, I heard the phone crackle. And I was just thinking, what if that thing came into me? I don't want to be the, the priest in the exorcist where I grab a hold of it and then jump out the window. <laughs> exactly. Let me just get a quick take from you on this. And that is the, the idea that from a religious standpoint, Christians and other denominations or other religions may also believe that there's no such thing as ghosts or spirits. What we are witnessing are sometimes referred to as familiars. It's part of a demonic deception. In other words, there are yes. no there are no hauntings. There are only demonic deceptions. How do you feel about that? You know, first of all, I find that interesting for this reason, and I'll have to actually give Joshua Warren the credit for this. For I was doing actually one of his shows with him at, at one time back when we, we used to associate and work with each other, and during one of the breaks, he, he told me, he said, you know, I don't understand that Christians have a hard time believing in the paranormal because the Bible is the most paranormal book that's ever been written. And he's absolutely right about that. He talks about witches, it talks about ghosts, and I might, but it doesn't say demons that are ghosts, it says ghosts. And uh, so my thinking on that is that if that there is so much, 
you know, they also say we're, we're alone in the universe, which I just can't even fathom that from any direction. You know, if we are God's best work, uh, he he probably just should <laughs> let us be a draft and try it again. I mean, because we have a whole lot of weaknesses as as human beings. I do especially. But anyway, I would say to those people is that, you know, I'm studying life after death. That's what I'm studying, and that's what you proposed that is true. We either go to heaven or we go to hell, but it is life after death. And I said I'm trying to establish that in in a scientific method. And it would not do anything to my faith or my faith if I was able to actually sit down and have an apparition talk to me. It would not diminish my faith in that. It just means that God's big enough to be dealing with the whole universe that he could also deal with different dimensions. And maybe when we die, we go to a different dimension. I don't have any idea. I'm not afraid of death, but I don't want to welcome it either. So my response to them, I think, would just be that, you know, just because there's something you don't understand, that doesn't mean that it's demonic. Something that I think is demonic is where you might have two school guys uh, get automatic weapons and go in Columbine High School and, and blow people away. And that I would, you know, we could talk some evil there and, you know, and all the other things, the kid at Parkway. I mean, we could just go through all that sort of stuff. But anyway, I, I think that uh, in studying uh, this, that, that Christians would be kind of interested in the fact. And, you know, there's a lot of Christians that, that are interested. You know, as a matter of fact, I have a whole lot of people when I finally, after Our State Magazine, run a, uh, uh, actually a four or five page article on me. Um, I, I had no choice but just to come out and say, yep, that's what I do. My colleagues around me already knew that. Some think it's just weird. Others, but you think not, but you would, you'd be surprised at the people that will come to you and say, now, you're going to think I'm crazy, but, and, and then they tell you this. And that just sort of, I take some comfort in that. And, you know, I don't really necessarily think of anybody as crazy. I was taught not to do that as well. Maybe they operate in a different manner than I do. But I think that would be my response to that, is that the, the, the Bible's the most paranormal book you can get. Very well put. All right, Alvin, we'll uh, take one final time out, come back and talk about some of the places of renown that you've been fortunate enough to investigate, including Loch Ness, Oxford University, the Devil's Stair Steps in North Carolina. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Dr. Alvin Prophet. Lest people think that your investigations have been uh, limited or restricted to Appalachia, uh, you have you have traveled the globe. Tell me about, uh, for example... And uh, we went to Scotland. And if I may interject this, this is one of my thrills of life, too. We went to where uh, there were ghost tours that were going through uh, the underground in Edinburgh. And people might not know what I'm talking about. It's not like underground as in the rock underground or the English underground. It was actually catacombs where people lived during the days of of the, the bloodshed and, you know, of of all that that was going on in Scotland and Edinburgh at the time. And these people lived their whole lives down there, some of them never seeing the sun. And 
uh, it was something that I had studied, but not really appreciated until actually I took the first tour. And I went to the tour people, and I said, you know, I'm an investigator, and I'd like to take a look at this. And they said, well, we can't let you be in there by yourself. But what you can do is you get between tours, and you can follow one out of their sight, and before the other comes, when you hear them coming, you, you do that. So I did that on my first night. And um, then uh, the, the next night, I, I came up, and I talked to them again. They said, well, listen, why don't you – join the last tourist group that's coming through you can be we will let you be the last person out and as long as you promise to close and lock the door i swear to goodness it sounds like you know you're going to grandmama's house but make sure you lock the door when you leave uh and just the the magnitude of that once everybody was gone the silence and the dark and the history that just went on around me. And I was taking pictures, and I got some extremely good light activity, which I mean beams of light that, that are shooting down. And that was not at all present when, you know, that I saw. But you would see that. It was evidently something that was captured by flash, and it was moving at an incredible rate of speed. I caught two or three of those. And I also caught orbs of different colors. Most of orbs are like white or pale or gray. And, but these, I, I captured one or two that was just really bright green. And so, yeah, I, I didn't really hear anything and I didn't see anything with my eye. But just being in the underground of Edinburgh was just an absolute thrill for me. You are one of the few people that has ever developed and taught a course on psychical science research. You did that at Appalachian State University. Uh, tell me about that yes, course. Sir. Well, naturally, my, my field of, uh, of, I guess, expertise or whatever would be educational leadership. But we have a program at App State, which I think is an excellent program, that they have their professors, if they want, it's strictly volunteer, that you can design a course that has all the rigor of being a course uh, that that is worthy of being taught at App State, but that um, you can divide it on. You can you know, what you, you design it based on something that you like. And naturally, I thought, well, I'll give that a shot. And so I wrote up uh, a, a really scholarly document as to you know, well, why should we study the paranormal? One was, well, how about people like this, like Carl Jung. You know, he studied the paranormal. William James, he studied the paranormal. And then you could keep going through this this list of famous people who believed in Thomas Alva Edison was actually working on a, a phone that would reach the dead when he died. That's something, I guess, that they, they try to keep quiet a little bit. But anyway, I designed the course, did the literature review on the whole thing, and explained why I thought it was necessary because that there's a lot of kids out there now, and they go, you know, they go off on these haunted, you know, we're going to go see if we can see a ghost type of thing. And there is some things that's inherently dangerous about that. And, you know, I've been, I've been a speaker at, you know, middle schools and high schools and actually other universities to where, you know, I talked about. That's one of the things that I would talk about. But the class also has to be built into the research component. And here is where my high school teachers just come back in spades, where they just said, you know, when, when I, would, I would go in, I'd say, we've got to research this. That means you've got to keep records. You've, you've got to find a way to research it. And I let them pick out their particular topic. And... Uh, but anyway, it was. It's called a first year seminar, and it's worth three hours credit, and it would go toward the degree. So this was actually a class they were taking for their degree as a general elective. And so uh, every time I taught it, it was just 
it, it was filled up. People couldn't get into it. And so I just really had a good time teaching that. And, you know, it's like I can – most of the time I talk graduate students who are working on their, their master's or the EDS specialist degree or their doctorate. And then coming in and teaching who were predominantly freshmen, I got a chance to t- teach uh, kids who are going, what if? What if? And then you, you go with the graduate students, and it's more of a theme of it is. This is the way that it is. But anyway, uh, just one quick story on that. I had a young man who was really, really uh, very interested in the course, and he was wanting to get into remote viewing. And I thought, well, that's a great topic to study. So I proved it. And uh, he said, you know where I'm going I'm gonna, to I'm gonna try to remote view to where my sister lives, and she's in the, the Coast Guard. And I'm going to try to do that. And then, you know, a couple of weeks went by, and then he came up. He stayed after class. He said, I don't know what to do. He said, I've got a letter from the Coast Guard that said I would cease and desist on studying remote viewing as far as one of their properties are concerned. And so I thought, well, number one, did his sister actually bring it up to one of her superiors? Or do they go through all the mail or whatever it was? But uh, he, he went on to write about uh, spontaneous combustion of humans. But anyway, I thought that was really, really interesting that the, the Coast Guard jumped in and said no, because as you know, uh, that is something that our, our military industrial complex has, has been studying for a while is how to remote view. And, uh, but anyway, I just found that that was very amusing. Yeah, I'm wondering if somehow their psychic spies detected that he was remote remotely viewing one of their locations maybe that's how they found that's out. fascinating that's fascinating you know i have never thought of that and you could absolutely be right on that wouldn't that be something and that's that's another thing i have if there's a complaint about studying the paranormal it's that people you know, organizations, institutions don't tend to share everything that they get, and it's all, you know, you know that it's just for me. This is going to be for me, and there's not many ways to make a living, you know, studying the paranormal, and I guess I can understand that, but I think that sometimes we are shooting the collective study uh, of the, the psychical sciences by not cooperating. Like I did with those three kids back in high school, I was taught to do that. You you cooperate and share. So uh, anyway, that's that's actually that's a fascinating take on that, Richard. So uh, in conclusion, uh, Alvin, after nearly a lifetime investigating and researching the paranormal, are you any closer to identifying perhaps what might be behind all this? You know, I think what I am closer to is a peace of mind that I have because I have verified many times over that um, it's real. It happens to me. And But uh, some of the other things that come into play is Diane Archangel. I don't know if you know of her or you may have actually interviewed her, but she did some work uh, a number a few years ago and she did uh, she, she took uh, Carl Jung's work in, in the 16 different personality types, also called Myers-Briggs, and she, she administered that to, to a, a very large population, and what she got back was that certain, and I won't be able to tell you which one they are, there's 16 you know, different mindsets, but that certain mindsets were more capable of seeing, hearing, or believing in the paranormal as the others. And so I, I've just always thought that, that that's fascinating. So I think some of the things that I, I've come up with is the fact that everybody is not going to experience 
the paranormal. And even if they did, they're going to explain it away because it's not within their paradigm of thinking. And I can understand that. But I, I think, you know, just from my guess, is it's, it's, it's entities in a different dimension. And for just one moment or two, that they can come through and, and communicate with a person that's actually on the uh, another dimension trying to reach out. To answer your question, I have to say, no, I haven't been able to prove it, what it is one way or the other, but I am really satisfied that it exists. And uh, I, I've long ago quit trying to prove to the world that this exists. It's enough that I know it for myself. I will be happy to talk to anybody about it, and I, I try to be as helpful as I can. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Prophet, and, and thank you for, uh, for hanging out for the last hour. It's been just a delightful experience talking with you. Okay, my thanks to Carlos Kajina and Ryan White. Back next week with journalist David Menzies from Rebel News. In the meantime... Don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the rooftops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Or at least up the stairs. Good night. Good night.